0: No Mickey show We clash momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating Give the masses back its currency Greed from elites oligarchs stay fed deep state faith fed everybody break bread racism homophobia sexism religion in this melted of We live in time to build a new system unionize labor rights Highlight the issue talking has left his best The saga continues Continues it's the no Mickey show uh-huh.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. It is Wednesday, June 30th, and it is 195 degrees outside. I am dying, but I am actually not in the United States right now, where you are also suffering with a major heat wave. I am in Athens, Greece. Uh, You may recall that I uh, would be traveling here for part of the summer, um, mostly because we have a conference in Greece that we are going to be airing from. It's a left leadership conference. The committee program, Arun Chowdhury and I will be doing a special uh, from the conference in a couple of weeks. But, you know, being of Greek descent, I can't lose an opportunity to see my family. (laughs) So I'm also here uh, visiting my family who I haven't seen in a couple of years, you know, post-pandemic. It is very hot today. And I know it is very hot in the Pacific Northwest with record temperatures, as well as New York and the Eastern Seaboard, basically the entire country. The entire planet is on fire right now. So solidarity, climate change. We'll be talking about that a a little bit later. This is our first episode with our new format, you may know. Uh, We are now doing our show Wednesday and Friday nights from 8 p.m. Eastern to 10 p.m. Both Wednesday and Friday, you're going to get two hours of content, two times a week. It's the same amount of content. It's just consolidated and at night. Uh, makes it a little bit easier for everybody, at least on our side, and hopefully a little bit easier for our viewers as well and our listeners uh, over on Patreon and our podcast. We'll also be breaking up uh, the show into pieces just for you guys to know. So if you want to see segments, you know, if you want to listen to segments alone, you will be able to listen to the segments alone, like one interview, you know, another interview, um, or you can listen to it in its entirety. So with that, I don't know if you guys heard, there's a little bit of a debacle in New York City right now. Uh, who will be the mayor? <laughs> Does democracy work? Well, guess what? Turns out New York City, progressive, you know, champions of New York City, who've been talking about this for years, we got a little bit of an electioneering problem, an electioneering problem. The Board of Elections, that is a, uh, <laughs> It is. it is <laughs> a questionable entity, I'll just say, uh, has made some mistakes with the city's first ranked choice voting election. There were a slew of reforms that passed in New York State, state electoral reforms in the last couple of years, partly to address the low turnout and the closed primary system that the state has. New, York's, New York State has uh, extremely low turnout. It is just below or was just below Louisiana, which had the lowest turnout. And, you know, many advocates, uh, good government advocates, you know, said we should be doing a lot to reform our electoral system, especially given that New York state is a democratic state and the progressive beacon, right? Well, finally, after years of fighting the Independent Democratic Conference, the Democrats won back the Senate, honestly, meaning not the way that the Independent Democratic Conference did. The IDC, as they're called, they held up. A lot of voting reform legislation for for years, and one of the the, the the big pieces of legislation passed when the Democrats took over again in the Senate was voting reforms: early voting, uh, better mail-in voting, uh, you know, registration deadlines are are earlier, um, as well, as, I mean, later, as well as uh, consolidated primaries, because it used to be that you had primary dates all over the place. You had one in June, you had one in uh, September, depending on if they're municipal or or congressional, federal or state. Uh, So now we have all of our primaries in June. And of course, last week on Tuesday, we had our mayoral election as well as uh, city council races and the district attorney's races. So, okay, that leads us to the board of elections because the board of elections, you'd think it would be this nonpartisan committee Uh, that it would be very good government like they are in other states, municipalities around the country, except our board of elections in New York City is a cluster F. When I say a cluster F, you may remember in 2016, they just lost 200,000 ballots. Remember that during the Democratic primary in Brooklyn? 200,000 ballots just disappeared. And at the time, uh, Attorney General Eric Schneiderman had to sue them, and then they finally admitted that they lost them. Uh, There were scenarios years ago in 2000 where State Senator Liz Kruger, uh, who is an advocate for good government, uh, she lost her first race narrowly because 200 ballots disappeared. And years later, they found the ballots in, you ready for this? Are you ready for this? air ducts of the Board of Elections office. How does this happen with something that is supposed to be nonpartisan? Well, it turns out the Board of Elections is actually dysfunctional because there are, it is filled with people who are political appointees, there's nepotism and folks who just don't show up to work. In October of last year, there was an article of, in the New York Times Discussing this, discussing how uh the many failures of the Board of Elections, not just Manhattan, not just Brooklyn, but all over the Board of Elections uh, in New York City is, re- is a remnant of Tammany Hall. Now you may recall Tammany Hall. Uh, we've talked about this on the show, you know, many, many times. Uh, Tammany Hall was a political clubhouse. Uh, the goal of Tammany Hall was to get people jobs, immigrants jobs. And put forward uh, a more working class, you know, challenge the oligarchs of the city. A lot of folks are not, but of course, it's associate, associated with no-show jobs and corruption. And turns out, board of elections—it's a relic of Tammany Hall. Well, who has been running Tammany? Or, who has been running the board of elections? This is from the New York Times article. You can't make this up. The lead of this article in October of two thousand twenty starts off with this paragraph. The official who oversees voter registration in New York City is the 80-year-old mother of a former congressman. The director of election day operations is a close friend of Manhattan's Republican chairwoman, Andrea katzen TVs The head of ballot management is the son of a former Brooklyn Democratic district leader. And the administrative manager is the wife of a city council member. That's just a couple... Couple pieces of what's been going on. Uh, There were reports that folks had been smoking marijuana on the job. Okay, cool. We're all for smoking marijuana, but not doing their job. And when folks complained, nothing happened. And then the people who complained mysteriously lost their jobs. This is the state of the entity that is supposed to be overseeing our quote unquote democracy. So here we are today. We all thought. You know they were going to start tabulating the rank choice voting. Uh, you know, just two days ago, and as they started tabulating, it became very clear that Eric Adams, the Brooklyn Borough President, was in the lead. Except, <laughs> except some of the math didn't make sense. Reporters started to ask questions on Twitter. It didn't make sense at all. How is it that these these numbers are not adding up? Well, turns out, you can't make this up the Board of Elections issued a statement acknowledging a, quote, discrepancy, and subsequently took down the totals from their website, the vote totals. They had included the test ballots in the tabulation system. They were never cleared out. So the entire, the the, the numbers are all over the place now. And now we don't know if they're gonna go back and recount, How do we know that the count is accurate? So Eric Adams, who was in the clear lead before, is now only 2.2 points away from Catherine Garcia, who's the the, the sanitation chief of the city. This is insane. 135,000 more votes were counted than those reported on election night. That was the discrepancy there. This is like, as, as David Wasserman said, this is like the 2020 Iowa caucus all over again, except there's like even more limited predictive value. We don't have anything to uh, model this on because we've never had a ring choice voting system in the city. Uh, we have no oversight agency, and I'm probably gonna guess that we're not gonna have a, a re-vote anytime soon. So the state of our city, literally the nation's largest city, is in complete disarray. Democracy. They like to say that democracy is messy but there's nothing better. I'm really questioning that at this point. Really questioning that at this point. All right, we have a wonderful show today. Uh, we not only have some of our favorites on because this is a special show, but I'm excited to talk about what's been going on with the progressives with these favorites. We have John Nichols joining us first. And then later we have Professor Harvey Kay. And then in the second hour, we're doing a full panel with Representative Chris Rabb and Arun Chowdhury, who's in my time zone right now. I think or maybe we're an hour difference. He's in Germany. Uh, he's, of course, the host of the committee program. We will be right back after this brief break with John Nichols. All right. One of our favorites is here. He's been uh, incredibly patient with us as we transition into this new show format. Uh, John Nichols is, of course, the National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation. And he's the author of The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. John, what would Henry Wallace think about India Walton's win last Tuesday?
2: Wow. You're asking me to put words into the mouth of a guy who has been away for the better part of uh, 55 years. Uh, And I can say, having spent a lot of time writing about him, that he would be thrilled. Just uh, as excited, frankly, as Bernie Sanders is and as a lot of other folks who have spent many, many years arguing that uh, if you created an independent progressive politics rooted in economic and social and racial justice, and that focused on the real needs of people at the grassroots, that it could prevail. And this is what uh, Henry Wallace always wanted the Democratic Party to be. He wanted it to be a radical party, a party that that constantly kind of upped the game, upped the commitment, that took the promise of the New Deal and extended it to all the places where it didn't go. Uh, and uh, that's in so many ways what India Walton did up in uh, Buffalo, and, you know, it's it's important to understand that, uh, you know, people don't set out to make history. Usually, they set out to deal with the problems of the place where they live, and India Walton is an example of someone who did exactly that. Um, she's not a politician. She hasn't run in elections before. She hasn't held offices before. You know, she's she is uh, a nurse uh, who then went into housing activism and the interesting thing is I think one of the most telling things about India Walton the and and I don't know how on the setup of all this whether people know the backstory on her so yeah um, let's
1: let's let's talk a little bit about who, who she was um and then I want to get into some of the I mean as somebody who who Grew up in Western New York. Uh, ah, yes. Went to high school in Buffalo. I am particularly interested in this topic. Um, my mom served in the legislature there, so this is like such an amazing thing. Like at the granular level, I'm really, you know, politically. Yeah. I think as a political scientist too, like anybody would be fascinated by this election. But let's tell. Let's talk about her first because that's that's the big story.
2: So India Walton, um, as as we've noted a little bit, uh, is from Buffalo, New York. Uh, deep rooted in the city, somebody who uh, loves Buffalo, talks about how great it is, talks about, you know, what a cool town it is, what good people there are, but uh, like people who love their cities, uh, recognizes its real challenges. And um, she came up uh, as she freely acknowledges and talks about a great deal uh, in a rough way. Uh, She uh, was a mom at 14 uh ultimately then had uh twins uh, when she was still a teenager who ended up in a really rough uh situation they were in a uh intensive care unit and uh there she saw the nurses working and was so impressed by what they were doing and was so struck by what she was doing and was such a curious and smart young woman uh that she asked questions she got engaged and ultimately uh out of that experience and in a lot of other developments became a nurse and became a, a very good nurse. And, uh, and also a real activist in her union uh, at 1199 and was organizing, was engaged, uh, became more and more political, uh, but also more successful as a person. And so one of the most telling things about India Walton is that when she moved into uh, a new neighborhood, right? Was getting a home and 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 doing the things that people do, at, at, as when you're in your late 20s and early 30s. Um, she recognized that she was a gentrifier, that she was you know somebody who had some some resources. She wasn't rich by any means. She's working class still, but she had the resources to to buy into a place and and she recognized the challenges of transformation of neighborhoods especially in a city where there's been deindustrialization, a lot of job losses, a lot of challenges economically. And what she saw was that, you know, the downtown and certain areas were just booming, right? And money was being put into tech and all sorts of other things. And that some of the neighborhoods were starting to fix up, but a lot of people were being left behind. And so she steered herself into housing activism and became very, very engaged in that issue. And- And I think it's fair to say, without putting words in her mouth, because she's such a she's so good at talking about all this, that um, this this clear inequity in the city, especially as regards housing, very much influenced her campaign. And she ran a campaign for mayor of Buffalo against a four term incumbent in a Democratic primary uh, in which she was absolutely written off. I can't even begin to describe the extent to which she was written off. She went herself to collect the petition signatures to get on the ballot in the winter in Buffalo. And anybody who is from Buffalo knows, That means you're in a lot of snow. you're walking
1: through seven feet of snow. Have fun. That's right, exactly. (laughs) And everyone's really cranky because they haven't seen sun in nine months. So you're not gonna go get petitions. And people are like, get out of my face. The wind is blowing in my face and the snow is going into my eyes. It is not a fun thing. But
2: they were apparently impressed uh, and that someone had the wherewithal to do this. And also remember, this is during COVID. Um, So all of these factors in play. Um, but she did it. She got on the ballot. And then the incumbent mayor, who was very, very tied to a lot of corporate interests, very tied to a lot of, you know, power, good, ma- relatively mainstream Democrat, um, said, uh, it, A, never mentioned her name, refused to debate her, refused to acknowledge that he had a, a primary opponent. I mean, didn't even, and this is very helpful to her, he didn't campaign for a lot of the, a lot of the campaign. He was just like, oh, you know, It's just a, it's a coronation. And she kept at it and built this remarkable coalition rooted in Democratic Socialists of America, the Working Families Party, uh, and then as time went on in uh, some unions that started to recognize that this was an opportunity to really change Buffalo. And one of the key endorsements was the Buffalo Federation of Teachers. Uh, And so this thing kept happening. But even into election day, uh, India Walton was out there with her yard sign on the street corners, calling to cars saying, did you vote yet? I mean, she was physically doing this campaign. It was, this was a true grassroots campaign and the people who supported her, all volunteers, um, you know, were, were hustling out to try and you know, literally drag every last vote to the polls. Uh, and then something amazing happened. The the early voting, and the absentee voting, that the number the ballots came in. And then okay, can I just <laughs>
1: can I make one yeah. note one note? So just for folks to know, there was no rank choice voting in no, Buffalo. This is not, not like the New York City situation. That was just a New York City uh, reform. So this is just yeah. a standard election primary. Uh, but the primary dates did change. We, I opened up talking about the electoral reforms of the state. So. Buffalo still had the primary reforms uh, that were passed in the legislature. So just to make that clear. Yeah.
2: And, and so um, they, the first results start to come in and they show India Walton ahead of the incumbent mayor. And everybody's like, well, this can't hold. You know, I mean, how can this be? But the results kept coming in from more and more neighborhoods across the city from neighborhoods where it was presumed that the incumbent mayor would be very, very strong. And she kept doing well. I mean, either winning or running way above where people expected. And she ultimately prevailed. I mean, the mayor's, the incumbent mayor is still grumbling about it and that, but uh, it appears she had prevailed by around 7% of the vote, a very solid victory. And India Walton, uh, who in especially did especially well in some of those neighborhoods, that she was talking about, the neighborhoods that were facing the threat of gentrification, the threat of uh, you know unaffordable housing and all the challenges that she prevailed. And uh, it looks like she's going to be the next mayor of Buffalo, New York, the second largest city in New York, uh, one of the uh, largest cities in the United States. She will, in fact, be the first uh, democratic socialist mayor of a major city in the United States since Frank Zeidler, Left in 1960 in Milwaukee, so we're talking uh, a lot of years there uh, that have is been without this.
1: Unreal. I mean, I yeah. am as somebody, a creature of grew up in Buffalo politics. I mean, seriously, this is this is so. There's no other way for me to describe how. Shocking! Of all the cities in America, this has happened. This is this is Cuomo's Democratic right. Not that it's an, you know post-industrial town that had uh, real left organizing for years. This is a city and a county, and and you know keep in mind there's not a strong mayor. Uh, it's a city. It's still a city, but they have the county legislature which oversees you know parts of the city. So there's there's some weird dynamics there. Um, but this is a city that the Democratic Party and a county that the Democratic Party has been basically run by Cuomo. It is a place <laughs> where Cuomo is really popular still. Uh, <laughs> still, <laughs> it is a party that is, is you know, the, there isn't like a radical, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's very little like insurgency happening in Buffalo. So this is incredible to me. Absolutely incredible. It's not like New York where you've got the battle, you know, New York city between, um, you know, the, the left and, and the centrist, you know, the working families party and, and the, you know, DSA it's, it's, it exists in Buffalo, but it's not anywhere near where it is in many other cities across the country. So I think this is just a beautiful, um, you know, it was, it was almost like cosmic. I, there, people are saying, and I think rightfully so this is similar to, uh, when AOC uh, not just, you know, when she when she took on Crowley and Crowley didn't show up and barely took her seriously and ignored her and every politician in town ignored her, which they're not now, of course, um, when the parties, including Working Families Party, by the way, ignored her uh, and she, you know, just focused and she defeated not only Joe Crowley, you know, second most powerful congressman, but a uh, democratic congressman, but the queen's machine. He ran the machine. And I think that there's a similar element because Byron Brown was the chair of the Democratic Party of the state, which is uh, basically Cuomo's party. And so, you know, a lot of people are saying there's there's some similarity here, and that you know she she caught him sleeping.
2: Sure, I, I well, there's an element of that, sure, and that's believe me, that's how politics works, right? You do keep catch, catch somebody sleeping. Um, that's that's not a a diminishment. Of a victory. That's that. The fact is, if you're smart enough to see where there's a vulnerability, where there's an opening, uh, you take advantage of it. That's that's basically how most insurgent campaigns historically have prevailed. Not all, but many. Um, and so, uh, but I think there's there's more. There's a little more to it here. This is a, a distinct situation because you're right. It is outside of New York City. It is up in Buffalo it is important to understand that there has been some good organizing there. I mean, you know, the DSA has been active up there, Working Families has been active up there, other folks, you know, there's, there's, there's a, a, a reality, and there is the reality of the work that India Walton herself was doing on housing and identifying these challenges. And, and so, uh, but ultimately you come down to politics, you come down to that, there's a primary, somebody's gonna run, what's, what's gonna happen? Um, She didn't run as a person who was, you know, a prominent elected official as somebody who had a lot of, uh, you know, media, you know, enthusiasm or anything like that. She came in as a grassroots activist. And um, and I think that that what's significant about the Buffalo issue is how clearly a set of issues played in this. And this is a big deal because there's a lot of talk about how democratic socialists uh, reach out to a broader electorate. How do they win people over? And uh, and to just assume, oh yeah, the working class is gonna vote for the democratic socialists because democratic socialists are on the side of the working class. And there's gotta be more to it than that. There has to be some explanation of why and what and what it's all about. And um, while I think AOC's breakthrough was historic, um, She broke through, I think because of a combination of national and local issues, right? And a frustration with the Democratic Party not taking on, at that point, Donald Trump and among others in an effective way. Um, In Buffalo, I think it was sort of hyper-local. There was a lot of core issues in the neighborhoods and core issues with the police department in Buffalo, core issues that people saw in, in real time And if you look at India Walton's uh, platform, her program, it was stunning. I mean, it's it's like a presidential level platform. You know, it's like filled with detailed uh, proposals, very rooted in the community, very knowing, but with lots of innovative ideas. Uh, If she was running for governor on this platform, you would say, wow, that's a that's that's a very well done platform for a gubernatorial race for our, for, you know, a Senate race. And in the city of Buffalo, I think it, it imparted to a lot of voters, a sense of seriousness. You know, this is somebody who really a gets it, understands where the problems are. And B has a whole bunch of really good ideas based in experience, based in a lot of reading, a lot of thinking, a lot of talking with people um, that could maybe solve problems in the city. And that's a lesson, uh, I think for democratic socialists, leftists, radicals, whatever, you know, however you're mounting your campaign, you can do it anywhere, but you do have to do it there, right? You have to do it, you know, with a commitment to what's happening on the ground and a knowledge of it and experience. And, um, I just think you saw in Buffalo something quite amazing. Uh, and, you're right to be enthusiastic about it. Um, I think people around the country are enthusiastic about it. I think people are, you know, noticing it and saying, "Wow, this is this is something real." Now, that's going to be a challenging reality for India Walton,
1: right? That's it's four that years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so that's the next thing is she's going to be very lonely. <laughs> she's going to be dealing with a common council that's not too progressive. She's going to be dealing with a county legislature that is. Uh, you know, yeah, there are Democrats. Uh, a lot of them are more conservative and then there are just flat out Trumpian people on yep. the county legislature controlling the budgets and uh, so much as A. So it's it, this will be you know fascinating to watch, but uh, maybe it'll inspire more people to to run um, more progressives to run. Uh, before before we wrap, I uh, one factor in this that was amazing to me, I mean truly amazing if we're gonna use that word, was the turnout. How many people voted, and now Byron Brown, the the former mayor, uh, and and some some right wing people as well, are um, urging him, you know, and he's trying to separate himself from that to, to do a write in campaign for the general election, uh, which you know sounds crazy normally, but when you see the number that turned out, it's it seems actually like it might be a strategy for them. But of course now she's she's made national news, so.
2: Well, it's an interesting dynamic. Um, you may see somebody run as a right in candidate against her. You may see machinations to try and, and you know, oppose her. But what's striking is uh, the extent to which a lot of prominent Democrats have said, nope, she's our candidate. And and I don't think that's just party loyalty coming into play. I think it's getting to know this person and and saying, you know what? This is actually somebody who's good as a campaigner good as a thinker good as you know a potential office holder you know what i mean they're they're kind of like they may not agree with her on every issue but they're like this you know we're not going to stand in the way of this cuz this actually makes sense she she's got ideas she's got you know uh, a program and you know i i think that the organizer's background is one of the key things here to be a good organizer you have to know how to work with a lot of people, including folks that you don't necessarily agree with. And uh, I've been watching her uh, over these last few weeks, and especially since she since she, she came through. Um, it's, it's quite striking. She's great at talking to, you know, media folks that don't know much about stuff and, you know, local media and other folks and kind of walking them through things, doing so in this very appealing way. And in my sense is that uh, if I could just close on one last kind of notion here, I grew up in Wisconsin around Milwaukee. And uh, one of the strengths, one of the remarkable strengths of the socialists who ran Milwaukee from 1910 to 1960 was that people were actually proud of the fact that they had this sort of distinctive governance. And it was very clean, very honest, very, you know, good government, well-managed. And, and they were, you know, they looked at those mayors, Dan Hone and, and Frank Seidler and others. And they were like, you know, these are, these are straight shooters and that they call themselves socialists. Okay. That's great. We're proud of that. That's, that's what we are. And I think something like that could develop in Buffalo where, uh, even folks who weren't necessarily really enthusiastic about democratic socialism, maybe even folks who didn't vote for India Walton initially, will look at this and say, you know what, this is this is somebody who's really trying and trying to bring us a, a, an open, transparent, effective governance. Uh, and boy, if it starts to gain traction, who knows, might be Lackawanna next.
1: Oh, Lackawanna! <laughs> if you know Erie County. You know Lackawanna. Uh, my grandfather's office was in Lackawanna. And if <laughs> it's a horrible joke, I'm going to tell you right now. Uh-oh. And if you replace every "a" with an "e," it's leaky weenie.
2: Oh my! That was a
1: joke that we would tell. A distinctive little.
2: Western New York bit of String, humor, which I'm sure Western
1: people would get.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all I can tell you is, uh, um, look, India Walton is going to be watched very closely by a lot of people in Western New York, a lot of people in New York, and a lot of people around the country. And, um, and obviously there'll be some folks who want her to fail. Uh, but I can tell you, there's gonna be a lot of folks cheering this on and saying, this is, this is exciting because of this individual, but it's also exciting because of the ideas and especially those ideas on housing and gentrification, my sense is that um, there's going to be a lot of people going to Buffalo and looking at what's being done and borrowing pages from it. So your old home territory uh, might be the kind of starting point for something major.
1: It is about time. <laughs> Things move it's not glacial. It is. The, the, I remember. Just a side note before we rush out. Um, they would talk about the Peace Bridge, which is this bridge between, yeah. uh, you know, New York and 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 Canada, because you're right there across the water from Canada. And uh, yeah, uh, they were talking about a new Peace Bridge for twenty years. At that point in nineteen like ninety seven, they're still talking about it today.
2: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah.
1: So there you go. I'm really excited. Yeah, well,
2: Buffalo takes time, but um <laughs> Buffalo tough. is Buffalo caught up very, very fast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, now Buffalo may be rocketing ahead of the rest of the country.
1: But isn't that how history works?
2: It is. It's exactly. And it's look, everybody was looking at New York City. Um and then suddenly it was Buffalo that produced a real result and frankly an exciting result. Not that New York, New York City may yet produce a few exciting results. We'll see if they can uh, ever count their votes.
1: <laughs> maybe, maybe we should. It's not about ripping apart the Board of Elections. It's about having a fair Board of Elections that doesn't. Not have having a Board of these.
2: Elections. Period. I mean, yeah, at this point, it's just a uh, what's going on there is indefensible at about a hundred levels. Yeah. And uh, it's doing damage. What's what's happening in New York is doing damage to uh, understanding of electoral reform. There's going to be people who are going to say, oh, it's all ranked choice voting's fault. It isn't. Um, And it's doing a lot of damage, frankly, to confidence in whoever gets elected mayor and, and to other posts. So uh, yeah, I I would hope that the next mayor, whoever it is, uh, makes reform of the board of elections, a central theme of their mayoralty.
1: It's, um, you know, one more thing just on the Board of Elections uh, note, just because we've been talking about it on the show, most of the show today. Uh, the Board of Elections has a bunch of political appointees who are related to actually blood relatives or, you know, married to um, many current elected officials. So I would really like to have to have to have.
2: Anti-nepotism. You know. uh rule.
1: Yeah. We well, have, you yeah. have uh, city council members and borough presidents who have their sons and wives uh, in there. You know, the joke nothing. about the Board of Elections yeah.
2: in New York is, right, is that um, it's not made up of you know political hacks. It's made up of the cousins of political hacks who aren't that's even right. interested in politics. And that's the really frustrating part about it, because if it was a bunch of people who were really interested in politics. You know and really engaged they would at least mm-hmm. you know want to get the results because they'd want to know themselves right but right. It, the way it operates now is just as a you know kind of a nightmarish bureaucracy um and, and this i love it, that
1: though <laughs> that line that's the best line yeah, the cousins, yeah. cousins of political
2: yeah. people. yeah it's like people who aren't even really that interested but they just want a job And and that happens, you know, look, it happens all over America and a lot of places. But at at this point, there are actually quite a few people who would be interested in who won the election. And so uh, when they can sort that out, it might be a good idea.
1: Even the hacks want to (laughs) know. That's what I mean. They want to know who they should be lobbying their jobs for. You know, the hacks are like Eric Adams, Catherine Garcia. I need to get you know, they got to pull their political. That's what this is really about now. It's like, we're going to get and, and, into the new administration. And
2: so it's, look, um, I would say that from a standpoint of somebody who's covered thousands of elections, I would say that New York City is at an emergency point. Um, you know, this is a point where confidence in their elections uh, could really be done severe damage. And uh, a lot of people need to step up, step up and get this right. Uh, very, very quickly and very, very efficiently. And the way to do that is not to kind of rerun the ballots the right way or, you know, wait till you've got all the absentee ballots in, wait till you've got your whole pool that you're going to deal with, and then do it in one clear, well-defined, very transparent run of the ranked choice voting, which by the way is happens very quickly. It's not hard to do that. Um, but they shouldn't be doing this sort of piecemeal thing of telling you somebody's, somebody's eliminated, somebody's won before you've even got all the ballots in. So they're, right. they're doing it wrong.
1: They're doing it wrong, yeah. It's yeah. not like an election night thing. John Nichols, thank you for joining us.
2: Honored as always. It's a great pleasure to talk about a great new mayor in Buffalo.
1: Let's go, Buffalo. <laughs> Take care, John.
2: Take care. Talk to you soon.
1: All right. We'll be right back right after this quick break. All right. Harvey K is with us today, of course. Uh, of course, we'd have him on our first two hour show. Uh, professor Harvey K is a former, he's a professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. And he is, of course, the author of many, many, many books, including Thomas Paine and The Promise of America, The Fight for Four Freedoms, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, FDR and Democracy. Uh, is that is that, are those the top tier ones? Who's behind you right now, FDR? That's FDR.
3: I think that's the FDR sitting there and Lin- Lincoln's writings are there and FDR's writings. I mean, it's all over the place. I didn't do that. Her- you,
1: know. you didn't do Lincoln's writings. You weren't his ghostwriter, as far as yeah. we knew. <laughs> Uh, the 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 embryo the very early embryo. <laughs> What's the opposite of a ghost? I wonder if there's like pre, like a ghost is is after birth. Like, but are aliens? Maybe maybe that's us. Maybe the new alien thing is actually what we are like in the future.
3: Wait, are is that a serious question?
1: <laughs> sort of. I mean, <laughs> aliens are now serious.
3: Well, I so, actually like the, the ghost emoji on uh, on my phone, so maybe I'm projecting, who knows.
1: All right, sounds good. I
3: mean, I don't know. Uh, all right, let's talk but
1: about But I will curiosity. tell you that your backdrop <laughs> yes. has a
3: kind of otherworldly sensibility to
1: it. That's what I'm going for, you know, just in a corner. It's a right kind of, of heavenly light.
3: kind of thing. Maybe you're like, like on Mount Olympus or something. That's <laughs> not there. <laughs>
1: You can. Uh, yes, you can go. <laughs> it's just a short little climb. All right. So let's talk about what's going on with Biden and uh, the infrastructure bill. <sighs> All yeah. right. I know you have a lot of thoughts. Let's let's just get into it. Okay. Uh, still uh, not FDR, right? We're still not FDR. No,
3: no, no. No, we're moving quickly away from FDR. Even the so? idea, even the, I don't think anyone's mentioned FDR <laughs> uh, in months or if they have no one's paying attention, rightly not paying attention. You know, I'm going to start off with the question that I'm going to that I keep asking myself and the answer should be obvious, but but it's still the case. We still have no choice. And that is, can we trust Biden? Okay, that, that, that's an important question. And I know most people on the left would have said to me, you mean to say you trusted him so far? And it isn't that I trusted him. It's more the case of he's a president. We have the House and the Senate. Um, he projected that, or Ron Klain and crew projected the, the idea that he was going to be the next FDR. Hell, Bernie was practically saying such things, you know. But, but after the first, I don't know, once they got that American rescue plan, through, you know, it's been slow going to put it, as I tweeted, I think I said, can you, go, you know, it's like, can you go any slower, Joe? Or, you know, you know, it's just, it's crazy that we're in the second hundred days and we don't even know if it'll take the, a third hundred days and eventually we're out of time, you might say. Now, the reason I say that is that there was, first of all, the question of the filibuster, right? Now, and people should really appreciate this, that the filibuster, I want to remind people there's nothing particularly sweet about the filibuster. There's nothing constitutional about the filibuster. It's a Senate rule essentially that has blocked progressive change, admittedly at times perhaps uh, things off the right but it, but mostly historically, it really has been a nightmare in favor of making America more democratic and right now this little rule that has this all-powerful presence is really blocking what everyone talks about as, you know, saving democracy. And if that, so, okay, so keep that in mind. So the reality right now is that the two bills that were so essential going forward the For the People Act, and I know there are people on the left who don't even like the For the People Act. They thought it gave too much, you know, power to a two-party system. But the point is, the For the People Act is essential to restore and enhance the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And and Mansion hasn't said he's not going to. It's not like he. Oh, actually, if a number of the Democrats have reservations. We know that. I mean, it's not just Mansion. One of whom's from your what your home state. Like, well, is it your home state, Arizona, or just a kind of back and forth kind of place.
1: No, I, I lived there until I was five. And then I uh, I went to University of Arizona. Right. But I grew up in, I, th- based on the earlier segment with John Nichols where we talked about Buffalo, clearly I grew up in Buffalo. <laughs> it's very clear. <laughs> I was dropping a lot of weird Buffalo references. And I could yeah. just do a whole show on that.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes if you're ever back in Buffalo, you should do a walking tour for people. It's, it actually oh, love it love is
1: architecturally. This. It's actually, it, beautiful. They do these amazing tours. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Well, yeah, to come back. On the, the waterfront,
1: I mean yeah. let's go back and talk more about Buffalo. Oh,
3: but so John, so so John was on before me. That's really nice. I haven't talked we well, talked a few weeks ago, but I haven't talked to him since. So okay, so here's the deal. So for the people act is basically going nowhere. But the other thing which people don't even talk about in the media any longer, which was there at the beginning, is the is the Pro Act, which is to empower workers. And you and I spent innumerable occasions talking about the imperative of empowering workers. And by the way, empowering workers is essential in a a fashion very intimately connected to the For the People Act because you gotta empower workers to be in labor unions because it's workers in unions who go door to door calling out the vote for Democrats. If you don't have people going door to door, the internet will not take the place to remind people to get out to vote because especially with 2022 coming up, the midterms, those are always up in the air. Okay, always up in the air, except when Roosevelt was president, when it was actually quite a successful year for Democrats, 1934. Okay, so they're, they're dead by way of the filibuster. And there's no immediate sense that, that they can do anything about it. And by the way, I think we've even mentioned before then mansion is, is, you know, it's like not just mansion alone, it's Feinstein, it's probably Chris Coons. Chris Coons just, I can't tell you how he pisses me off. I mean, his when I see him on TV and I think that he's become the sort of spokesperson, it just just kills me. Okay, poor Delaware, it's all I can say. Okay, so let me- Luckily, Delaware
1: is so small that it, it, I think there could be an India Walton situation there where if like we really got our act together and we wanted to take him on- it's like the size of a congressional district.
3: Yeah, it's always funny when you're driving from. Well, when I'm driving from DC to New York, and as you pass through Delaware, you haven't even had time to decide. Will I stop at the service area to go to the bathroom? It's, There's uh, the
1: famous rest stop in Delaware. Yeah, I know that right. one.
3: <laughs> right. So so then so then, and I grew up in New Jersey, but I was in the northern part of New Jersey. So Delaware. First time I ever got to Delaware, I was. Actually stepped out of a car in Delaware. I was probably already in college. That said, but as as I think we talked about last time, the only thing, to, the only way that Biden can redeem his administration—and I say that seriously—is by way of the infrastructure plans. His, I mean, now when I say so, why why is that the case? Well, for a start, because infrastructure isn't just the physical—you know, it's like rebuilding bridges, you know, paving roads, a whole host of you know, the sort of national infrastructure, which has really been in decay. And by the way, to address the national infrastructure, even his original proposal, I think it was 2.3 trillion, was not at the level necessary to really begin to address the infrastructure question. But in any case, then to all of a sudden, he then reduced it in response to conservative corporate Dems and and Republicans. I think he reduced it to one point. Something 1.3 and then and then these this group of bipartisan supposedly bipartisan senators they've proposed what 590 I, billion.
1: I, this is insane to me, okay? Because as I've said on the show over and over, this was not something that was ever controversial until Obama, and so much so that that's why I think Biden was willing to go forward on infrastructure because it's just it's like the basic necessities of our country it's about like having your tires changed and like oh by the way we're our economy is spiraling out of control and it's a great way to you know it's a one twofer the i just want i wish i wish the progressive democrats or whoever that is in support of the infrastructure bill it's not you know one of these sellouts who just look at them and say i don't know what, what what's your plan here to privatize the highways that, Something we should be yeah. proud of because that's the only alternative and clearly that's what you're trying to do here. Kirsten Cinema, et cetera.
3: Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, and I, I just drove back from New York to Green Bay, Wisconsin, and I came across, of course, Ohio and Indiana. And every time I enter Indiana, I realize that when I pay a toll, this is a toll to a private corporation because Indiana privatized their toll road across the top of the top of the state. Well, in fact, in this bill, this bipartisan bill, apparently, and, and a lot of people have not made a lot of noise about this, though David Dane at the American Prospect has done a really good job in staying on top of it. As he points out, there is a, a fixture, there's a, a, there, there's an element in this, which is basically called asset swap, an asset swapping. Because keep in mind that a number of Democrat, a number of these corporate Dems, and especially the Republicans, do not want to raise taxes. You know, the, it's, it's amazing. I think they're far ahead of us on the MMT question at times. But having said that, the more important thing is they don't want to raise taxes. So how do you pay for this? So they've figured out well way to do it is something I think they've tried in Australia. This is what they've done in in, in, in certain localities like Chicago where they private they privatize the parking system. And what it means is that you pay for it by literally selling off public assets,
1: right? Uh, how'd that work out for Detroit and the water system, and like Buffalo and the water system? Yeah, like in Flint, you mean? And stuff Flint, like that. I'm sorry, yeah. Flint. Excuse me. Well, think about
3: um, think about Texas and its marvelous power grid. Uh, electric grid, right?
1: Or all of Puerto Rico, literally, well, <laughs> like yeah, being sold yeah. off right now. Right. Like, how does that work? Do hedge fund managers do they do they really have the interests of of these folks? And I oh, mean, because yeah, sure. when you're selling to these companies, right. I mean, these companies are often tethered to, you know, Wall yeah. Street.
3: Yeah, they regularly toast the public interest when they sit down to have dinner. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, yeah. so, the, so.
1: I just don't understand. I'm sorry. This is so out yeah. of control. I know that they do this at the local level, and 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 they're and, and politicians have fall, fallen for it because they have to manage their budgets. Oh, look at that cup. Um,
3: One of my faves. Unfo- <laughs> I almost made a mistake and was going to use it on somebody else's show, and I realized I shouldn't do that you necessarily. Don't really do that. I thing. should do it. All right.
1: <laughs> because I don't have it. Um, no, but really, like what, what really bothers me now about this is this was a trick. You know what? Like when they first started doing this, uh, the neoliberal kind of model here, it was a trick. And a lot of, I think even well-meaning Democrats fell for it because they had a balanced budget and they were, you know, Buffalo, I can only speak to Buffalo and I'll mention it 9,000 times in the show today, I guess. Um, Erie County, for instance, was... You know, it it the, it was completely mismanaged twenty five years ago, twenty years ago, and um, was was com- I mean, like bankruptcy. It was horrible. They went bankrupt, yeah. and they had my mom was in the uh, she was on the uh, committee where she went line by line in the city and was like, wait, why are we paying for this this like cousin of, you know, a legislator's house on a, I mean, there was some crazy stuff in that budget. Oh, I can imagine, yeah. a fun thing to have to do. But simultaneously, that's when all the, you know, the companies came in and they said, well, if you privatize, we'll take care of it. Of course, that didn't work out very well. Yeah. Okay, but now we all know. And yet they're escalating it to a national level. I just don't understand how any well-meaning Democrats can let this happen. I really, I think it is, it is beyond absurd. This is not, this is like, like this is, this is, it's essentially a coup. I mean, once we start to nationalize, uh, once we start to privatize our our highways and, and I, I, I don't know, I mean, I'm sorry, like maybe this is me being naive, but I don't understand how we're not making a bigger deal of this.
3: Yeah, nor do I, and this, by the way, is also a consequence. You know, I don't expect everyone to know their their history inside and out of the United States, but a hundred years ago, when the capital P progressives were in 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 some places in control, you might say, of city councils, and if they weren't, then what the folks known as sewer socialists were. One of the first things they did, and this is where this is where the progressives and the sewer socialists got together, is they turned, you know, sewers and water lines and roads and transit systems into public utilities. And it, you know, but somehow over time, those things when, when city governments ran out of money and states were run maybe by more reactionary folks and the federal government didn't want to bail people out, you know, they, so they started selling off assets. And basically that's what they want to do in this particular case. So anyhow, there was an interesting story over the past week. No one could tell if, if what Biden was actually saying on this infrastructure stuff. First, he embraced the bipartisan plan because you know, he loves reaching across the aisle, okay. And so so first he does that. Then he should end
1: the filibuster. You want to make friends with your Republicans and the filibuster.
3: Yeah. Right. And, And then on top of that, he then in another occasion talked about the fact that he was definitely going to go ahead with first the bipartisan plan and then he's going to push through and sign the big plan that progressives want. In fact, that most Democrats want. In fact, I actually think most Democrats and Republicans as citizens want. And then all of a sudden the Republicans heard that and the leadership like McConnell and others said, well, wait a second, this is not, you're not gonna have us join you in this bipartisan plan and then turn around and and actually go after the 2.3. And I wanna remind everyone that last winter, Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin said he was up in his head, he was willing to go with a $4 trillion infrastructure plan. And I'll sidebar that by saying, my understanding is that Manchin is eyeing the governorship of West Virginia. And you can imagine if he could bring home the bacon, as they say, to West Virginia, look, look at the infrastructure plan that I brought, look at the new new the, the new roadways, the roadways, the new access to the internet, all of these things, that it'll enhance his campaign. So why the hell haven't the Democrats really said to themselves, look, Joe, you've got aspirations. We have aspirations, right? Let's make it a point of enacting at least two points. Let's go to three, four trillion. I understand Bernie has already got, he's got it, you know, you know, the sort of the bill ready to go if he should ever be empowered to do so for the larger plan. OK, I don't know what Cinema would say in all of this, because who the hell knows what the hell she thinks? OK, I, I can't. To me, it's like and she's an alien. How is it? Yes, there you go. Or, or a ghost, right? You're right. know I mean, she's an alien. You know, as an East Coaster, it's the kind of person I would have expected to come out of California, not Arizona, for what it's worth, okay? Well, she's
1: from Florida originally. <laughs>
3: oh, which wow. is
1: That makes wow. more panhandle. Yeah, well,
3: that, that explains a lot. Little,
1: little panhandle action there. Sorry, guys, in the panhandle. I really apologize. I hope that was an insult, but.
3: All <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah, so so it's not clear if, but so wait, so then. The progressives for the first time said to to Pelosi clearly and, and in numbers that matter, we're not gonna vote in favor of the bipartisan plan unless you bring up the bipartisan plan and the bigger plan at the same time in the House. And apparently she said yes, she'd go along with the progressives on this, okay? Yeah, I mean, look, will she bend later? Who Do I know? I, I have no idea. But it is the case that people do expect to see the if, if Biden allows the one to go forward, if Pelosi allows the one to go forward without the bigger plan in tandem, then the progressives will say no. And I, I think they're serious. This time, I think they're serious. And by the way, if they're not, if it turns out that some of them bend and defer and all of that, then Democrats are finished. I, I can't see a future. I mean, apparently the, the White House, Biden thinks he can win the presidency again, merely by way of the fact that he, he'll, the, this bipartisanship thing will be appealing to the suburban Republicans. Well, believe me, people don't like losers. And if they and and he'll look like a loser if it's going to be only you know under six hundred billion because it won't make a hell of a difference. Not to mention they'll start hearing about, you know, the privatization going forward. I mean, it's not like these are radical ideas. This bipartisan, as you were saying, this this infrastructure has been crying out to us. Look, I can't even remember how many years ago it was, but when the, the interstate highway bridge collapsed over the Mississippi in the Twin Cities. I thought surely this has got to be the you know the the sound that that wake awakens people, and of course there was infrastructure work under Obama, but not at all on the scale that the civil engineers who've who, who've assessed all of this are, are are happy with not happy with not even I think they got like a D plus for infrastructure and this you know
1: I mean it's I know it's not necessarily the same, but I I do think it is related. Um, it's like it's like the building collapse in Miami. It should be a rallying cry for climate change. You know, the oh, yeah. fact that you have a state that's sinking into the water and they're, you know, and, and granted the, the inspectors obviously didn't really uh, do their their proper diligence, whatever it is that they have to do. Due diligence. Due diligence. But, um, but still, well, no, I mean.
3: Were people that were notifying them. You know, salt water, air erodes, <laughs> corrodes. I guess it's concrete, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, well, I'm not moving to Florida. I'm not moving to Arizona. Wisconsin right now is bad enough for the Republican legislature. But the fact is it is really, seriously. So how do we explain the Republicans' opposition to infrastructure? It's easy. They would have done it possibly if Trump was president because the Trump plan would have seen massive public dollars flowing into the huge billion, billion dollar operation contractors okay and in this case contractors will make tremendous money but they've got even bigger sites the republicans they want to privatize everything they are so reactionary they are so hostile to the public interest and public good they want to privatize everything and i can tell you that i remember when i when i was uh, just several years ago when i had students who were in student government and they had lunch with the board, the, U, the UW system board of Regents. There were regions who actually said to them at lunch, well, maybe we ought to privatize the University of Wisconsin system. They were really willing to, you know, just privatize Wait, the state university I mean,
1: system. That's what they're doing in Puerto Rico. They're starving the, the, yeah. the very, I mean, it, it's it's jarring to see how it looks like these schools were abandoned. Yeah. The university exactly. system, like you walk by them, and your your the the signs are falling apart, and uh, and they're starving them, and they're increasing tuition uh, costs, and of course the goal is to privatize them or just eliminate them altogether.
3: It's like the laboratory that's for what they
1: want to do here on the exact. That's exactly what it is. It's the laboratory. Yeah. Um, Professor Harvey Kay, thanks for joining us. You're it's the best. always my
3: pleasure. And we'll I, have you on again soon. As you I know. look forward to it. You take care of yourself.
1: All right. We will be right back with our amazing panel. We have Rep Rab and Arun Chowdhury here to talk about a bunch of stuff. Uh, be right back. All right, guys, I am full disclosure, extremely jet lagged. Uh, it is a really hard trip to make. Uh, I am. I think my jet lag has just gotten worse over the years. Um, Anything over like three hours, you know, time difference, I have a really tough time with. I'm really jet lagged right now. Uh, And this is that time where I start to crash. But you know what? I noticed last night when I couldn't go to sleep at four in the morning, (laughs) our time, uh, I put a little bit of my CBD tincture in my water and I had a very deep sleep as a result. I don't know if that's just jet lag or if that's a CBD, but I do know that the tincture from Sunset Lake CBD has done wonders on my sleep. I don't toss and turn as much as I usually do Uh, with it. I can actually monitor my sleep because I wear one of those wristbands that monitors my sleep because I never know if I'm really getting eight eight hours or not, Uh, but it really has made a difference in my life. It has made me less tired during the day. It's helped me sleep deeply. Uh, And you can also do that with the gummies. That's how it started is I started with the gummies, but then I just ate the entire bottle of gummies and I passed out for many hours. Uh, But you can go check it out. They've got a bunch of different products. Sunset Lake CBD is, of course, a farmer owned company that ships craft CBD products directly from their farm in Vermont to your door. They have all types of products, gummies, salves, uh, coffee, of course, so you don't get all jittery. It keeps you calm, but it also wakes you up. Uh, and all of their products also help with aches and pains and stress. Uh, they converted a Ben & Jerry's farm in Ver- Vermont and diversified it over to grow premium hemp. You can also smoke the hemp. Uh, <laughs> when you support Sunset like CBD, you are support supporting sustainable agriculture, that enhances rural communities. And of course, uh, Sunset Lake CBD pays their uh, workers a starting salary, minimum wage of $15 an hour. And, 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 and uh, when you support them, you are also supporting independent media because they support independent media like our show and the David Packman Show and the Majority Report. And on top of all that, their employees are the majority of their company. So go check out sunsetlakecbd.com. You can uh, get 20% off of your order right now if you go to sunsetlakecbd.com and you type in NOMI, N-O-M-I. That's 20% off of your entire order, sunsetlakecbd.com. All right. Are we ready to go? We've got our panelists. While we bring them in, I'll do the introductions because we know we know them. Uh, Representative RepRab, of course, represents the 200th District in Pennsylvania. It is... Northwest Philadelphia. He is also the author of Invisible Capital. Go check it out wherever you buy your books. And Arun Chowdhury is, he's a political filmmaker, but he's also the host of the committee program, which airs right here on Mondays. Uh, he was also the first official White House videographer under Obama, and then was the creative director for that guy, Bernie Sanders, and his political oh, campaign guy. in 2016. Yeah, that guy, he's just, you know just that cranky old man, you know what they call him. Run! It's really hot right now. Uh, Really, really, really hot everywhere in the world. Yes. (laughs) Uh, How, what's the temperature in Germany? Because I can tell you what it is right here in Greece. (laughs) Uh,
4: We had a break today. It rained all day. That was great. But before that, it's been in the nineties, you know, which in Berlin is extremely unusual to be in the high eighties and then the nineties and to not get cool at night consistently. And it's like not a city that's built for it. So it is a place where people don't have air conditioners and they do have sort of old spaces that are hard uh, to figure that out in. And, you know, it's not as bad as a place like Paris or when a a heat wave hits, the kind of dense conditions cause, you know, huge amounts of deaths with old people, but in it, it is like that. It's scary.
1: Yes. So this is crazy because it's happening all over the world. Um, it's not just here in Europe, it's it's also in the Northwest right now. Uh, scientists are warning that climate change will just intensify heat waves like this. Now, I remember you mentioned Paris. I remember in 2003, there were like hundreds of people who died um, from yeah. a heat wave no, back was... in 2003. And Paris, I and mean, these are the stories that were breaking because of what you just said, these cities were not designed to. To be that way.
4: Well, I think the thing is uh, that these cities, are number are, are not are not equipped for it, but also the infrastructure is not equipped. And I loved if we could put up that picture of uh, the uh, Portland, the cable car actually melting. You can see in the photo, right? Like, look at this, right? It's crazy. Um, this is gonna cost a lot of money. I mean, I don't even mean to be cross about it, but it's also just something that people really need to think about. Whether you're a fossil fuel executive or not, however you make your money that you think this doesn't apply to you, this is going to cost a lot of money to be in constant crisis. Think about COVID, but, you know, and kind of supply chains and these things breaking down. But think about that happening all the time because of climate crisis after climate crisis. Think about accelerating infrastructure collapses like in Florida.
1: Well, that's what's so ridiculous about this. I mean, in our previous segment we were talking about the infrastructure bill. We mentioned, you know, the the, the Miami um, the Miami apartment building that that collapsed. I mean, that is Democrats should be connecting the dots on that and pressuring Florida lawmakers to do something about climate change because it's incredible that this is a state where you have the. Freaking craziest Republicans, climate deniers. Meanwhile, there are Republican voters who know that climate change exists. Why are we, as a p- political party, unable to do the simple storytelling of connecting the effing dots of a crisis with the lawmakers who are literally in charge?
4: One thing that makes it a bit harder, especially in places like Florida and Texas, where, uh, you know, as you know, I've spent uh, a decent amount of time. Uh, Is that the people who are against the infrastructure, you're like, who could possibly be against the infrastructure are also people who build things. It's people who build houses, it's contractors and folks like that who love when there's a big federal bill giving you money to rebuild something. that has been destroyed because then you can, again, make something, make it over and over again every few years. A hundred year flood every two years. That's great. That means big business every every two years. Uh, So you do have political pressure in a lot of places. From a, a lobbying group that I think people don't think about as much.
1: I mean, this is it, it, it's it's interesting because you know obviously law, lawmakers uh, are concerned with what is in front of them, right? Like what is immediate, what is urgent, what is uh, the most important thing? They're short-sighted. I'm sorry, you have a building that just collapsed in your district. It's opposite now. I don't, I don't, I don't. Does this make sense? Like, I'm just like, everything's yeah, always Yeah, and this story has
4: a lot of legs. And, you know, I hope that in terms of less, there was loss of life. And, you know, I, I, again, we talk crassly about these things because we're political practitioners. Uh, But like, I do hope that the story of this is told correctly by Democrats in terms of the values we hold, you know, which is actually keeping people safe in their homes and the reasons that we don't value that when we value other things, we don't value that. That story has to be told actively or others will tell a, a much different story. And, We'll see you know, how quickly it's absorbed, but to steal a, a phrase from our show, uh, from the show's own Julia Doubleday, the kind of fetishization around compromise seems to be what people are talking about rather than kind of getting tough around what matters and redefining what matters. It's the sort of difference between uh, a bold progressive agenda and showing everyone they're wrong and we can get along.
1: I'm, I'm a big fan of eliminating the term progressive because I think that's what happens is you have people start to label these camps as progressive camp versus Democrat. I am, a, you know, if you want to talk about uh, a $15 minimum wage, it shouldn't be progressives, a progressive agenda. It's called an American agenda, a working people's agenda, you know, and we have to stop saying they're the, no, the cap, they're the, the oligarch supporters. I mean, I think this is what's so frustrating with this scenario is that we put people into camps. And rather than, I mean, the press does, and we do ourselves. Rather than making it about the dire yeah, 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 materialist yeah, yeah. Well. needs, the left. exactly. Because the left—it's not the left. It's most Americans believe in climate change and want something to be done. Most Americans want a fifteen dollars minimum wage. Most Americans yeah. want Medicare for all. It's these oligarchs and their little backers that are 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 blocking this. And, and it's, it's a question still-
4: of trust. I mean, I say, right. you know, it, w- the advantage of being in Europe, is you can see, place after place after place immediately, that feels like they're all so special and different and have the same exact conversation, which is we want these things you're talking about, sustainable development, good jobs, uh, a new work-life balance definition, uh, and we don't trust any of you to get them for me. You. you know, it doesn't matter what I want. I won't get it. And so... Do building small on what's possible does make sense, but also it is just people have lost the faith and they need a holy crap moment to come back. And I think, you know, things like dropping a one trillion dollar bill instead of a ten trillion dollar bill, it's just like, oh yeah, one trillion dollar bill. It's like no, no, go with the holy crap one, because right. that actually is going to resonate and tell a story to people. And, yeah, you're going to get in some fights on Twitter and maybe cable news isn't going to be that great. But I'm talking about communicating with the people. People need a big thing to pay attention to, and they know it's a time for something big. And I think they want to see it.
1: Well, they, they want to see it, but also it's, we shouldn't just rely on the Democrats. I mean, there's tons of, of organizations out there that are, are, are climate organizations, including Sunrise, the messaging needs to shift. We are in an emergency, and if we want to talk about the Green New Deal, then we need to make it less about the Green New Deal and you know, say so whatever it is that triggers Republicans, and make it about the fact that it's an infrastructure bill. Your your bridges are collapsing. You, you're sick of the potholes. Potholes are the easiest thing to campaign on, and we can't even say, get we that love right.
4: Campaigning on potholes, we, we
1: literally can't get that right. You know, that's it. Jobs fixing in your potholes. And by the way, your apartment building will sink into the ocean overnight. Those about are the three things mayoral, that we're going to deal with.
4: The mayoral election in Rome is about to go on and it is going to be just pictures of trash and potholes for like a year. It's going to be it's going to be insane.
1: That's what it should be. Separate. You know, you want your pothole fixed? We'll get, get you a job and fix your pothole.
4: Super socialism.
1: That's Milwaukee. what we were talking about. The last the last theme of the day. All right. Uh, speaking of, of, of the establishment uh, freaking out, we um, let's bring Rep. Rob back in. Yes. All right. So uh, of course, former state Senator Nina Turner of Ohio is running for Congress in Ohio in her home district around Cleveland uh, to, rep- to replace uh Congresswoman Fudge, she's no longer Congresswoman. She's uh, over at, at HUD uh, as the Secretary of HUD, Secretary Fudge. I also, full disclosure, used to serve with her on a commission, and that was real fun. <laughs> <laughs> just leave it there. <laughs> and Nina, uh, Senator Turner, and and Congress uh, Secretary Fudge was she confirmed? Has she been? She's been confirmed, right? Yeah, she's confirmed. Okay, I, I can't keep up. There's just too much stuff going on. I know that there's stuff that's. People who haven't been confirmed yet. Um, all right. So turns out the establishment does not like the polls that have been coming out about uh, Nina Turner and how much money she's been raising for this this district. I am not surprised, but I'm also, you know, this is this is this is interesting because uh, she, of course, brushed up against the Democratic establishment during both primaries, and there were a lot of fight and words between both sides, as we all know. Uh, Jim Clyburn. From South Carolina uh, is now weighing in, and he, you know, let's not forget, he got involved in the uh, presidential race, and and you know got involved in. As soon as South Carolina flipped for Biden, the entire race shifted. People got out of the race, and all the stars aligned for Joe Biden. Will it work in Ohio? Do the people of Ohio care what a congressman from South Carolina thinks? Hillary Clinton al- already waited, and it didn't make a difference. So is this going to work?
4: A run. And then we'll go to Rick Brad. I mean, no, and it's way too late. (laughs) And this is like, you know, the establishment really got itself together when the Bernie Sanders uh, thing was happening, when he overperformed in Nevada, when he was bringing in Hispanic voters. Like phone calls were made, things happened. And, you know, the race deteriorated very quickly. This is the equivalent of if that started In June of like the primaries or something like, you know, she is already pulling in eye popping numbers. Uh, The Hillary Clinton thing was just the icing on that cake, which should have been a big warning of we will fundraise off every attack. So, you know, bring it on. And the polls are, you know, outrageously good for her, even if it is even if they are wrong, they are showing her as a dominant force. So. I, I don't think it makes a difference. Uh, I kind of wonder why bother. And it sounds like people have made promises to people and they don't think there's that much to lose.
1: RepRab, what do you think?
5: I don't think it will make a difference. And I, I don't think there's a, um, the dynamics of his involvement in the South Carolina primary is radically different than something far afield from his home base. And while there are, this uh, her ascendancy does have national implications, which is really an affirmation of of more Americans embracing progressive um values openly. Um it's it's not akin to the role he played in the presidential race. And I also want to say, too, um he he does have significant influence in, in South Carolina, but more importantly, the Black electorate had a lot of influence, largely because mm-hmm. um, like uh, many uh, uh, Black electorates around the country, we are we are very pragmatic and we have very low expectations of the white electorate. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of Black folk who did not believe that certain candidates would be as viable and that therefore it would hurt the chances that the, the negative impact of that lack of perceived viability would hurt black people the most. So I think it has more to do with, uh, I, and I ran against this type of dynamic in <laughs> in my own backyard. where In the Philly
1: machine? Get
5: the, out. Well, I mean, but see, here's the thing, like there's a, a lot of point to be made many yeah. populous um, cities, there's more than one machine yeah. because the establishment that I ran against actually opposed the democratic machine when it was explicitly uh, white and exclusionary yeah. and regressive. They supported Frank Rizzo. They supported many of the, the yeah. very racist democratic policies that were dominant in many cities um, in the industrial North and Northeast and Midwest. And um, they were cornerstones of those coalitions. I mean, you know, mm. this was what was for dinner. Right, exactly. And so um, the, the conventional wisdom um, in my part of town, which had the highest voter turnout of, of black voters for generations was that I couldn't win because I didn't have the establishments. Uh, I didn't kiss the ring and I, I was not a part of that clique. And therefore the the people who were the, uh, uh, I wouldn't say trusted, but um, kind of honorary um, godfathers and godmothers of the black electorate um would not allow for me to win but i actually did something radical and i went directly to my neighbors and to voters and i said um may i earn your vote and i won mm-hmm. and so uh we we can't it, i i want to give respect where respect is due in terms of uh congressman Clyburn. uh you know he is not as progressive as i would like <laughs> uh but uh and he, I think he's earned respect, but at the same time, I think we over-correct um, in terms of the type of influence he actually has on the statewide black electorate and on the black electorate nationally. I do not think that that is- that,
4: that's- South Carolina is well, a particularly he, nasty beast when it comes to machine politics.
1: But what, one thing just to, 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 I think that he could actually shift is the narrative. and I And my thought is they're not that dumb. They're not that dumb, thinking that he's going to move votes on the ground in Ohio when he's from South Carolina. Or that everybody, you know, the average person doesn't even know who their own congressperson is, let alone a congressperson. And but he changes the news cycle, and so suddenly he becomes an attack dog, and then they start attacking Senator Turner with somebody who's notable enough to get in the press. The press starts to shift, and that I think might be where there's. A dynamic if there's enough time but this is always what happens and is we have a month left a little bit over a month until the election and um because it's a special and it's in August and well that's uh, pure
5: I mean that's pure that's pure racism right there. That's just old school racism right there because um they were pulling out the stops in Pennsylvania uh when they wanted to affirm establishment candidates. They bring out the old establishment folks um to to do the same thing, I mean, it, it, whether they are black or not, they, if they bring out a black person to do it, they're insulated from being afraid of this scary black progressive woman, right? And that's really what it's about. They're afraid, and that's a good sign, right? Mm-hmm. If they're bringing out Jim Clyburn in an Ohio race, they're they're running scared. That's a mm-hmm. good thing
1: mm-hmm. um. Any final thoughts on that, Arun, or can we uh, shift to Board of election stuff? Because this is just... This I, I want to a...
4: shift to the Board of election stuff. But I do. will say that, you know, I, I think Rep. Rabb is right. You have to get to the people. And if you know you have something going on with the people, like I will say Barack Obama is somebody who went to South Carolina and didn't have to do the thing with the machine and didn't have to have walking around money and didn't have to donate to basketball courts and the things that you do when you run for president in South Carolina, uh, you know, and like... He and people were like, you can't win if you don't do that. And he actually won a dominating victory because people uh, it is it is racism of low expectations about what an electorate can do based Mm -hmm. on, you know, maybe out of touch leadership that is just part of a bigger machine. Mm
5: -hmm. And and it has a huge, if if I may, uh, (laughs) I just want to add this because it's very uh, Philly specific. Obama came to. Pennsylvania and said, we're not paying, uh, uh, the democratic machine for get out the vote because they don't know how to do it. It's a one party town. They don't have to do it. Cause I no matter people what. People
4: are sad we, watching us learning how the things work.
1: To be fair, think, though, Barack Obama doesn't believe in paying anything with the democratic party. Don't forget. He was the one who was like, I'm going to kill the democratic party. So.
5: Yeah. But in, but what he did in 2008 was say, yeah. We're not giving them a dime. We're yeah. we're deputizing the grassroots. We're going to use the technology and give them and all of that stuff, and it's taken hold. No de- no Democratic presidential candidate has has paid ever since, and they never will. So the last stronghold for the Democratic machine um, in in Philadelphia is judicial races and. Mm-hmm. Um, DA's racist, which is yeah. fascinating because Larry Krasner is one of the most popular progressive DA's in the entire country, right. the most incarcerating yeah, city in the world. And oh. he did not earn the Democratic, uh, uh, endorsement on his reelection run. And he, he crushed it. He won by 31 points and he crushed it, which shows that the democratic machine is now truly a paper tiger. So when folks say okay. you can't beat the machine, it really helps when the machine wins, if they're not, if they have no one running against them. And that's what I, I my candidacy, carry candidacy of so many other progressives in the past five, six years have proven that, you know, if you don't try, the machine wins.
1: A, fun, a funny thing happened when uh, Barack Obama decided to kill the democratic party. Uh, Not only did it create an opening for the Republican Party to come in, but it created an opening for progressives to to mobilize if if they got there. Um, All right. So this is bonkers. New Yorkers know what's going on with the Board of Elections. We opened the show on that. But Rep. Rab, uh, you got some news in in, in Pennsylvania with your you don't call the Board of Elections. What do you call it there?
5: Uh, So we call it the city commissioners. Uh, Office. Yeah.
1: How does it function? Let's let's first because we opened up talking about how the New York City Board of Elections is just a an office space where people smoke pot don't show up. And it's just like the sisters and brothers and nieces and nephews of all these uh, politicians in New York or former politicians. And you
5: want me to distinguish between New York and really yeah. Howe?
1: Is there a difference? Well, because <laughs> because the reports are all saying that, oh. you know, around the country, there are independent commissions and like, you know, and 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 all, and, and like we have a ring choice system. It
5: doesn't sound like system. Pennsylvania, though,
1: to be honest. It doesn't <laughs> sound like
5: Pennsylvania. I'm, it it I'm, is it's, I'm let us historically, I'm being a it historically been patronage central. What's fascinating about the city commissioner's office now is the person with the greatest shine and, and uh, national exposure is a Republican. He's one of, uh, of three city commissioners who are elected who work together that, and it's, um, they choose amongst the three who's the chair, the chair's a Democrat. So there's two Democrats and a Republican, but the Republican is the one who's getting all the heat and also getting all the shine because he's the one who's saying, I believe in transparency and accountability and equity. The Pennsylvania uh, GOP party is wrong. They're spreading big lies they're hurting democracy, and he's a good government elected. I work with him closely.
1: And what and, are the Republicans saying though? Because we missed that. What, what are they doing?
5: Well, the Republicans are still saying, um, we should have an audit. Um, ah. they, 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 they're, they're doubling down, tripling down on the bottom, on the on the big lie. And they apparently tried to sneak into our $39 billion budget, which is a historic size. It's normally around 35, 36. Um, uh, money for a Pennsylvania Bureau of Election Audits, which does not exist, by the way. It does not exist. Even like the the new, force of election fraud. The, even the new Auditor General, who is a black Republican and um, said, we, we can't enforce this. This is not a real thing. But they said, there's money set aside. So Governor Wolf this morning um, um, signed the budget but uh, remove that line item that could have potentially gone to this um, mystery bureau if it actually existed, but it doesn't.
1: Where, where, where would the money is. have gone? I'm just curious. If he didn't do that, like who got the check and who cashed the check?
5: You, I don't, you know, your level of detail and your questions I think are out of, <laughs> I just, they're inappropriate. You and your <laughs> one question. This before is we how we this leave. sausage well, isn't
1: made, actually. It's like. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. We should call this segment called um, Losing Faith in Democracy and, and How the Sausage is Made or something like
5: totally. that. Something like that.
1: Yes. Something like that. Arun, um, what are your thoughts on the Board of Elections, the debacles that are happening with our electoral best, strongest i Amongst
4: those. I'm amongst those who are sad Uh, to see the failures of, you know, whether it be the just regular stuff that they tried to do all the way to the ranked choice voting in New York City gone awry, that it means that people don't want to tinker with our democracy. And I do think that the only advantage of not having just absolute federal standards mandated down from the top is that people should be trying some different things. And I feel like we're going to take a big retreat uh, back from that. And these other ways just sort of... uh, and there's a lot of there's a lot of different things. Ranked choice voting is just one, you know, like making bigger congressional districts that you vote for two candidates from is, is another uh, really interesting idea. People have interesting ideas. But when you it's implement things rank like
5: rank the Iowa, voting. whether it's. Oh, it, it's, no, not it's because, because of, of incompetence voting. and also it's a, new they stuff. You literally
1: counted. Non, like like their test votes, 200,000. Te- then they lost 200,000 in 2016 because I don't know, maybe somebody was smoking and on people the job. Take this, <laughs> that was my
4: second point. People take this a little bit more seriously now, I think, like when people were like, oh my God, all these votes are missing here or there. And they were like, yeah, maybe it's New York, who knows. Now I think people are like, oh, maybe it's actually not so great. Yeah. Maybe, right. maybe our right. board needs a little something.
5: Listen, but this is where competency and integrity and best practices work, this is why we need to, and this is this is all because of the corruption of, of machines, right? Yes. Machines a lot, right? You get these jobs because of who you know, what bloodline you descend from, right? And we gotta kill that, we have to connect the dot, we need to create the narrative to say, this is how it negatively impacts all of us, whether mm. you're a policy wonk, whether yeah. you're a super voter, whether you care about the people
4: who love this, like, let them work on it. Like they yes. think about it all day. You know, that I don't want them doing Ted talks in Aspen. I want them actually like, you know, it, working with some organizers about how thing, like what's scalable, what's not scalable, learning about the real world, and then maybe implementing
5: It's, it's, it's even, it's even simpler than that. I have a bill, by the way, I have the ranked choice voting bill in Pennsylvania. So oh, nice. I'm watching New York very closely. Uh but I have another bill that simply says, let's randomize um, uh, the positions of candidate names on ballots. Oh, yeah. That, this is an important one. It's, it's,
4: it's I don't really think people simple. realize it. In Texas, you do a lottery, it's right. and they do like it in, in Philadelphia. Like
5: and if you are the best, most progressive candidate, you have the funding, you have the background, you have everything, you have the endorsements, but you five. place 34th yes. out of 35. The Democratic Party is going to say, don't run because you can't win. Let's give it to my cousin, you know, because he's number one. And yeah, he didn't pass the bar or anything, but he'll be a great judge. Right. That's that's 10 points right there. Yeah. Because they'd rather use a tin can to pull out your name than actually use the voting system that exists right now to. To automate it to automatically oh randomize the names, and I spoke to the majority chair of the state government committee, uh, a very conservative Republican, and I said, "I heard that one of your Republican colleagues likes my bill to randomize uh, names on the ballot." He goes, "Yeah, you know, I think we're, we might have a hearing on that in in the subcommittee, um, but it, but you know, I'm not going to run <laughs> the bill because it's too new." And I said. It's not new because we do something called the state lottery oh my god, and it's run by the government. So yeah. if we can do that. And we're talking about millions and mil- hundreds of millions. They're like of that's dollars. not
4: random either. Don't worry about it. <laughs> right. And we can do it for, for ballots. And, and no, you're lottery. right. You're absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We have the technology for this. It's not crazy. In,
1: in New York it's, it's, this is in New York city um, to get on the ballot, you have to get a certain number of signatures, obviously to get on the ballot. And, uh, and usually you want to get like three or four times. So if anybody's thinking about running for office, I can't believe I have to say this over and over to people because they'll be like, oh, I got the 1,200 uh, signatures. And I'm like, you need 10,000, not 1,200. Good try. Um, which is what we did in a week, uh, which was real fun when it was two degrees outside. But it's the first person who shows up to to submit them. That's how you get ranked. Oh, so, Oh, it's it's torturous. So sometimes what happens is
4: it's like showing up to housing court in Brooklyn.
1: It's exactly what it is. It's like showing up to housing court. But then you find out that unless somebody challenges the signatures, there are people who get higher up on the ballot. And then they never really actually, like, they could have been challenged, but because they're not a threat to another candidate, they're not challenged. And so nobody looks at their signatures and, and turns out they may not have enough, literally enough. Or, I mean, or like some of them are invalid. And many are invalid. Most are probably invalid if, if you're only really coming in with like, 1200. um, And then they still get higher up. It's crazy.
4: I will say in Europe, just, you know, for folks who aren't familiar with a lot of way that those systems works, especially sort of parliamentary systems who then have more power given to the parties who the order of the list of your party candidates is the most important thing and is determined by the party. So it's a difference between if someone just says I'm voting for the Partito Democratico, for instance, in Italy, I'm voting for, the exact order of people that they want, based on how well they do, those people are seated. If I want someone special, I have to actually do a whole ring of roll and cross the thing out and write in a number and do all this stuff. So the big contention then becomes a prime, a really internally facing primary of getting the old folks who run your party just to put you a little higher on the list. If I'm four, not five, and I get to be an MEP in Brussels, you know,
1: it's none of it's perfect. Let's just be. Be
4: clear. Ain't none of it perfect. Okay. Yeah. A ain't bit, none of it our it new segment called Ain't None of It Perfect. perfect. <laughs> yeah. Including that.
1: It's like the more you know, ain't none right. of it perfect. Democracy sucks, but it's the best thing we have. Actually, none of this stuff is democracy. We're going to be clear. When we talk about democracy, you know, it is not democratic to have a board of elections that is filled with with the cousins of like your sanitations commissioner, you No, know, and or tin cups
4: and coins and all of this stuff, playing cards in Nevada. It's oh, just yeah. it, it, it's I not, mean that's very on brand. <laughs> we have mecha- yeah we have mechanisms and they most of them are on brand, but they're not democratic.
1: Yeah.
5: No. No. They're they're aggressively anti-democratic. Because if we allowed for a true democracy, then there'd be a level of representation that would scare the hell out of the establishment. And I gotta tell you Establishment is, at least in Philly, which is the only big city in, in, in our state, is petrified of uh, the progressive grassroots movement that has swept in, uh, into victory, into office, a number of folks. And they talk about us, and it's wonderful to hear.
1: On that note, they are also petrified of critical race theory, which is the new idea. Yes. It's not new, but this, it's sweeping the country right now. And I keep having to go on Fox News and like, I'm like are I'm sorry I last time I went on Fox News I was like are, what why why are you why do you not believe in racism? And their response was there's individual racism. There is not systemic racism. And I said, "Okay, so so are you an individual racist?
5: So you're giving up communism for this? You know? <laughs> well, I mean, they have a choice. If they're going to take that argument, then they're going to have to say is it that you believe black people are genetically inferior or just culturally inferior? Right. Because you got nothing left if you don't acknowledge systemic racism. Yes. Right? Right? Because right. It, it's it's the old um, kind of gotcha question, have you stopped beating your wife? There's right. no right answer. Right? It's a you know, it's it's a setup. Right. So I say that to my colleagues do you believe that my people are just genetically or, right. ge- or culturally uh, you know, deficient? Because all of the racial disparities, black folk are pretty much always at the bottom. So it's our fault since you're just individuals. There's no systems or right. barriers because you believe they've all been eviscerated because of Martin Luther King gave a speech one day. So, you know, what do we have yes. left? And so what I've done in Pennsylvania is I've begun to document all the white supremacist laws on the books from colonial times to the it's present crazy. that document and show how those choices. It in turns Africa out it's all the laws. Have
1: funny, been, funny thing.
5: That's yes, <laughs> impacted what happens today. And I actually spoke on it on the House floor last week. And I said, because someone talked about uh, a rep- uh, conservative was um, chastising a Democrat for um, using a messaging um, to make this voter suppression bill um, look bad. And he said, oh, you're bringing up the, the, the scourge of Jim Crow. Mm. And so I spoke up and I said, I'm so glad you mentioned something that no one wants to talk about, which is Jim Crow and the vestiges of, of systemic racism and its origins. And then I connected it to all of the the history in Pennsylvania of black voter suppression by white folk since for 150, literally 150 years. And the irony is 150 years ago, uh, a black activist by the name of Octavius Cato, which has our very first monument for a black person in in Philadelphia, uh, public uh, statue, is now the most popular statue right under Rocky, which is depressing, but work with me here. Uh, We passed a resolution um, honoring him last year. It was my resolution that passed unanimously. So fast forward a year and I say, the guy who we unanimously supported for his work and his activism 150 years ago was murdered by white vigilantes on election day, the very first election that free black men could vote. This is a direct connection to the type of shit you are doing today with this awful bill. And man, you could hear a pin pin drop. And that's the reality, that's systemic.
1: So what is this bill, this this critical? Tell us what's happening, because this is, I I, you know, Republicans are very good at nationalizing an issue and then taking it to the local level.
5: Yes, Mm. yes. Um, well, they have national entities like American Legislative um, Exchange Council that is national in in scope, but finds the appropriate state legislatures to start with, where there's a Republican trifecta tested out there, and then moves it at, at all the other places. So those bills come to Pennsylvania um, after the trifectas have been successful. But we have a Democratic governor, so even though. They know the bill will not, these awful bills will not pass. It's great political fodder, you know, for their uh, their right-wing base. So there's HB 1300, which was just vetoed this morning, which is the grand Dame omnibus voter restriction, voter suppression bill. All the worst things from around the country were all put into this bill. So that was vetoed Greatest this morning. Case. But there was another bill that would ban critical race theory from being taught in kindergarten because you know how those critical race theorists, kindergarten through 12, it doesn't really exist in those schools, not just in Pennsylvania, but what nationally. What about summer school?
1: Let's get some sneaky stuff Smurf. in Smurfs,
5: Exactly. <laughs> critical race theory is taught really in a handful of law schools and graduate schools of education. It's not widespread. It's been around for a long time. And it basically says, let's look at how we interpret the law and how the law uh, influences society based on systemic racism. Let's look at also gender, et cetera. I mean, Go let's just be me.
4: clear. It's nothing to do with it. It just sounds snappy. It yeah. sounds like something like people who think they're smart say. It just, they found a thing that you can just say, and people are like, exactly. That's the thing I don't like. It's all but, those people
5: and the stuff. This is what makes it even worse. I approached. The gentleman, and I use that term loosely, on the House floor two weeks ago who, who introduced this bill along with uh, another conservative woman, Barbara Gleim. And I went to him on the House floor after I tweeted how awful I thought this bill was. And I said to him, I said, um, would you like to speak to some professors who teach critical race theory? Um, because reading the overview of your bill, it's clear that you have mischaracterized what it is. he goes, no, I don't need to, I talk to the parents. And I said, but you're writing a bill, you're introducing a bill that talks explicitly about critical race theory. You might wanna talk to a critical race theorist. Um, I know quite a few and be happy to make that connection for you. And he goes, no, no, I, I, I talk to the parents. So I lean over to the majority chair of the Agriculture Committee, another conservative Republican who I have a good relationship with. And I said to him, Dan, I would never introduce a bill on farming without talking to farmers. And he just he just smiled. And then I went back to to the representative and I said, look, um, I thought you would have some level of due diligence before you introduce this bill. It's clear you don't. I just wanted to tell you on the house floor that I believe your bill is racist and I wanted to say to your face what I'm saying about you on social media. Ah!
1: Nice. Boom. No, but what this my is
5: my sweets in person. Yes. <laughs>
1: Look, <laughs> or in his, No, but this is also me Liz. like, yeah, the voters are watching Fox News. They're watching the snippy thing. I mean, the amount of 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 hate mail I get after talking about critical... when there's a debate over critical race theory, On Fox News, it just shows that they are triggered, and it is aggressive. It is horrifying. I think this is really about something much, much deeper. um, You know, the new cultural wars. um, They're trying to find something to mobilize folks around now that Trump's not around. And I don't know. I mean, what you're saying around about it being snippy and quick. um, What do you think is you know why critical race theory and why not like a million other things that they could be focusing on that also ignite their racist takes.
4: It takes like the Marxist socialism thing that you hate, which is sort of, you know, the anti-individual blah, 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 and just injects blackness into it, into the exact, until it tastes good, right? Like they just, and it used to be that you didn't need as much to taste good, and now they need more. They need more uncut racism to have it taste good. (laughs) And that's where we're at. And, it's and it's professors it's are involved.
1: Brilliant. And it's like, oh, well, here's what's no, perfect to defund yeah. public universities. You know, don't send your kids to school because is they're going to learn that racism. And that is the
5: playbook, you know, with communism for sure. But here's yeah. the other thing. The, the, the woman who added her name to this bill as a co-prime sponsor is a woman named Representative Barbara Gleim. And she represents the very blue um, hamlet of Carlisle. Pennsylvania, where you have Dickinson College. It is also the home to the Carlisle Industrial School for Indians. It is the national, um, some say continental model for the cultural genocide of uh, indigenous youth. So all the atrocities we're hearing about in um, Canada are the mass graves of, of Native American youth. And let's not also forget the babies who were incinerated by the Catholic church when they fathered children by these these girls. Um, These are the pro-life folks. That school, that Carlisle School for Indians is in her district. So if this critical race theory bill were to pass, teachers in Carlisle could not talk about what happened in Carlisle which is literally the apex, the nexus for all of the cultural genocide of Native American youth in this country, in Canada, started in Pennsylvania. So when you, what is the response of those folks who just glom onto the critical race theory anti, you know, anti-CRT bandwagon? And then how do they justify not being able to talk to about the most basic thing that may define their very community? They're going to be put in a corner, not saying that they can't kind of squirm their way out of it like they do so many things, but it puts them in a really bad position. And that's the framing that we need to embrace by saying there's nothing wrong with talking about race. In fact, it is a moral imperative to talk about race and racism. Mm -hmm. And if we don't, this is what we get.
1: How did Germany do it, Iran? I mean, did they just kick out all the right wing? I mean, a.k.a. Nazis.
4: I mean, you have a resurgent right wing because there are, uh, you know, a lot Uh, of the ceilings that traditionally are, you know, but always were there and in ways that would be familiar with Americans and the police force and the army uh, in places, etc. But... The constant, what some people jokingly call, you know, overcorrection of the Germans, uh, which takes the form of public monuments. I think some of you will be familiar with the, the stumble stones, which are markers in the street for every Jew who was deported. And it's up a little bit so that you kick it by accident when you're walking by and then you're like, oh, and you look down and there's a name. Like, there's always these things that are designed architecturally to, to remind you. And so, yeah, there is a lot of that. I mean, I think there's a spectrum for how people deal with it, right? South Africa had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which sort of was more of a two-way street because there were less winners and losers and there were in a reconstruction, uh, you know, of a country. So I, I will, you know, not say these are the same things, but... Then there's the other side of the spectrum. America is not the worst on the other side. I think America, at least in some places, people are having conversations. Even some of our most traditional places, we actually have more conversations on race than not. It's some of places like in the Northeast with the kind of where uh, people actually are more self-segregating. Philadelphia being an incredible example with the, you know, the neighborhoods, the traditional white neighborhoods and the vibes and how, and how these things and how these things go. But you have places like France where they're sort of aggressively don't keep track of who's in their country, right? It's like, you know, forget it being in their constitution. You asking this is against the secular, universal, egalitarian nature of, you know, since our revolution, etc. cetera. Uh-huh. So this, How does that work this thing expresses itself all <laughs> yeah. different ways across the, and it's, and it's not working out. And it's not yeah, working out. Yeah, it's
1: not working out. I mean, you, you look at uh, the Jakarta method famously, you read you, mm. how literally people are, they don't talk about the genocide that occurred, you know, half a century ago. Massive genocide occurred, a uh, political genocide. You know, anybody who was affiliated, looked at, walked by a communist and there, was murdered and slaughtered and and they're just not allowed to talk about it. So, I, but I guess the bigger question is, and, you know, as we wrap up is what, Does it take? What is the secret sauce? What is the, how bad does it have to get? Going back to our original conversation, we are in such a failed state status right now. Democracy is in danger. I mean, if you want to talk about election meddling, I, Putin or whoever wants to meddle in our elections is looking at New York city right now and like laughing and saying, we don't even have to meddle. You guys are doing it on your own.
3: He's like, did did
4: we do this? The people are like, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think so. I'm just
1: waiting for Jerry Nadler to just get up and be like, uh, we actually believe that uh, Putin was uh, overseeing the board of elections. He just walked in because nobody was there. (laughs) No, but, but, but but for real, like what is it going to take to get us to a point where Germany is or where South Africa was because we have had genocides here. We have. I mean, I don't, I don't understand why the American people cannot get to that level. And it's not, I'm not just talking about today, but in the last 200 years, why is it that we weren't able to get to that level that Germany was or South Africa? It's
4: just, I mean, I will let, I will let Rob speak
5: to this. I, well, I, I, I have, I'm 51 years old. I, I've lived in a number of cities across the country and abroad. And last summer was the first time I saw a critical mass of young white people um, who were talking about racial justice in a a compelling and nuanced and enlightened way. I was very encouraged. And I don't mean about the woke folk. I mean, people who just thought that they should be a part of something bigger than themselves, um, that they saw the interconnectedness of our fates. And when I talk about reparations, I'm talking about how do we rep- uh, how do we repair our society? Not how we repair Black people. Re- black folk don't need to be repaired. Our society is, we have to, you know, that is what needs repairing. And that involves everyone. So unless and until everyone understands that we are all complicit and we are all responsible for our future, it won't work. And I'm seeing more and more white folk, largely younger, but not necessarily all urban, um, believe that our fates are intertwined and that's, that's really important. And less than until we can build a narrative that explains how all of these atrocities and systems hurt everybody, people are gonna just say, well, oh, that was those people. It, that doesn't really have anything to do with me. You have, to, you have to bring it to their doorstep. All the most compelling arguments are able to do that and this has to be one of them, and that's how other societies have been able to be somewhat effective.
1: It's the aliens. That's what's gonna. That's what's bringing the right and the left together. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. That's like. It's the we weirdest. Rubos. It's the craziest thing that like that's. Just asking what,
4: questions. We just want to know what's going on. Just uh,
1: want to know what's going on. A run. What's it gonna take?
4: I mean, what's it gonna take for what? For everybody to like do the right thing and come together. Uh, or like, you know, have the conversation, like I think- To recognize
1: the atrocities, I mean, in a way that is- It it
4: is is going to take more, uh, it is gonna take political unrest before that happens. It's gonna take a couple of long, hot summers at the very least, with there being real political consequences for neglect of having the conversation. Unless it is painful to not do it, people, and when I say people, especially, you know, meaning those in power don't want to have the conversation. It's uncomfortable. It's unhappy. It can, you know, bring the House of Cards down, whatever they think is going to happen. And so there has to be a reason. And so there has to be pressure.
1: But how did that work? I mean, listen, I'm, I'm not really an optimist in this situation now. How did that work yeah. for Puerto Rico? How did that work for? Yeah, they lost a governor. They replaced it with another Republican governor. You know, how did that work for Greece? Not so great. The unre- I, I'm at the point, and this is a topic maybe for the next time we talk, where I don't actually think that unrest is enough to make a difference now. There is something else that is, capital is so powerful. I, I mean, a couple of lawmakers that are progressive is great for changing the direction of the conversation, inspiring others to run for office, but it's happening at too slow of a pace as our society is completely disintegrating into chaos. Love you guys. Rep. Rab. Arun Chowdhury. <laughs>
4: And with Come chaos, on. we bid you peace. <laughs>
1: <laughs> From one failed state to another. <laughs> folks like Germany, you're doing fine. <laughs> yeah. Just the vaccinations are a little bit different. All right. Love you all. Thanks to everybody for tuning into our first two-hour episode that we're doing twice a week now. Go check out the committee program on Monday. Just, you know, Pennsylvania, keep supporting Rep. Rab throw him some money i'm sure he's like fundraising for something right now for re-election you're always fundraising throw him would a tesla would you take a tesla what if aoc donated her tesla to you
5: i'm good with my chevy bolt but yes just that's, kidding. again we're just asking the questions Just <laughs> all
1: right take care everybody To all of our moderators and everybody in the the chats right now, you know, we're not, we're not doing this the way that we normally do, but I want to send you the love. Thank you for always being there. Thank you for taking on the trolls. Thank you for shifting the algorithms. Make sure to subscribe and to like. You got to subscribe and like. Share the show with your friends, your family, your neighbors, the people you hate, the trolls. Uh, Because, you know, I think sometimes the trolls give us some views. We can just, you know, monitor them. Uh, no, but for real. Thank you to everybody. Thank you to producer Brad and to Ruthie and our team, and of course Dorsey. As always, uh, this new show, new show format. We're going to be figuring it out. So, uh, thank you for all of your patience, and we will see you on Friday at eight PM Eastern. Stay in solidarity.
0: Clash momentarily for class solidarity, cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed, deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system, unionize labor rights, highlight the issue. Talking heads left his best. The saga continues, continues, it's the No Meeky Show. show.